You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum, may peace be upon you, and welcome to another edition, live edition, I should say, of the breakfast show here at the Voice of Islam. A very warm welcome to you, brother Nafis. How are you this morning? I'm very well, thanks. Alhamdulillah. Um, righty, where are we? Well, today's program, as always, will be an interesting one. As usual, we do like to start off with the the morning news, see what's been printed in the papers. Um, and before we actually do so, a quick introduction to our segments this morning. First one starting at around 7.30, and that will be about the World Book Day and how to start reading and keep reading. It's very interesting, um, especially nowadays. I think people, dare I say, are tending to move away from reading books. That could be wrong. Um, and in our second segment, Brother Nafis, our second segment being about, um, I do believe, the difference between God's knowledge and man's knowledge. Um and um, I think it's a very interesting one because of the various discussion points that that will certainly entail and definitely bring about, I think, questions and um, some um, interesting conversations. Oh, no, actually, my apologies. The second segment's about Shakespeare, um, discussing the comedy amongst the tragedy, Shakespeare's best comedies. Um so for all of our English literature, literature fanatics, I think that will be of great um, encouragement to listen to. Righty, um, Brother Nafis, what's caught your eye in the papers this morning? Yep, I mean, once again, um, Harry and Meghan, they are on the different news outlets again. And um, so the latest about them is that the Duke and Duchess of Sussex have been asked to vacate Frogmore Cottage. Uh, that's been told by a spokesperson. Uh, the couple renovated their 10-bedroom property in 2018 after it was gifted to them by the Queen following their wedding at a cost of $2.4 million, which was initially paid for using taxpayer money until Prince Harry repaid the funds in full. Um, so they've been asked to vacate their UK residence um, and uh, this uh, request rather has come from uh, King Charles himself. And um, uh, reports c- have claimed that um, the rem- uh, which the remo- the reports have claimed the move which removes their final remaining foothold in the UK was sanctioned by King Charles. Um, it comes weeks after the Duke and Duchess of Sussex book Spare was released, uh, which revealed deep rifts between him and the rest of the royal family and i was just thinking um what what were they expecting i mean after uh i mean everyone has ups and downs at mm. each level of life i mean families have ups and downs disagreements they have some level of friction i mean if you've uh i mean ever walked this planet you definitely have ups and downs mm. but some things i think you should always keep private and personal you should give it its due privacy and if you don't, there are and there will be con- um, consequences that you'll face. So, uh, in my opinion, I mean, what were they expecting? Um, and uh, hats off to the royal family and the, uh, our late queen and mm. current king who have uh, 
kept this matter as private as they could. And mm -hmm. on the on uh, on a rather good note, we had the NHS <coughs> um, plans to help millions stop using antidepressants and painkillers. Mm. So that's something interesting. Millions of people will be uh, offered help to come off antidepressants and painkillers under the under an NHS drive to tackle addiction to prescription pills. New national guidance urges GPs to sort of stop writing uh, repeat prescriptions for those who have become dependent on common medications. The NHS plan, which aims to avoid US-style opioid crisis, recommends that patients be sent to art, music or gardening classes instead of being prescribed painkillers such as uh, uh, tramadol and codeine. I hope I pr pronounced that correctly. The health service uh, will also set up support groups and clinics to help p people come off, come off prescription drugs and manage withdrawal symptoms such as insomnia. Every year, one in four adults are prescribed potentially addictive drugs, including sleeping pills, strong painkillers, and so on and so forth. New figures show that 8.4 million adults in England uh, were prescribed antidepressants in the past 12 months. So that's actually very interesting that the NHS is going to um, help people get off uh, and these antidepressants because I have always uh, been of the opinion that, I mean, it's understood to go through phases of life, have ups and downs, and sometimes that can cause um, uh, depression, sadness, and uh, whatnot. It can have an effect on your mood, but the best way to heal yourself, uh, it, the only person who can heal yourself is yourself. Um, as um, mentioned before, it's you should. The best thing you can do is take up different activities, um, mm. try your best to move on in life, uh, just accept your reality. Uh, in fact, and uh, uh, I'm guessing these. Um, Antidepressants or painkillers or sleeping pills are an artificial means of um, are, are are an artificial means of uh, I wouldn't say healing but maybe helping you and I think it's also a temporary uh, uh, process a, t a temporary sort of help but um, nevertheless main thing is that you try to move on in life be strong. And mm. uh, that's what, in fact, what uh, the Holy Prophet of Islam mm. taught us, that a strong believer is better than a weak believer. Uh, so, Brother Shuzeb, any news items that you want? Oh, well, yeah, no, uh, thank you for that. Um, very interesting and breaking news here. Um, and uh, our listeners can judge on, well, at least the morality of breaking news. It's got to do with... Um, journalist behind the leak of the messages that Matt Hancock sent during the COVID-19 pandemic um, so that journalist has come forward and in an interview on Talk TV Isabel Oakshot said she did not give Mr. Hancock advance notice of the leak Miss Oakshot said Mr. Hancock was extremely troubled in terms of how to respond to this in a previous statement, Mr. Hancock's spokesperson said the Daily Telegraph had published 
partial leaks that presented a distorted account of the pandemic to fit an anti-lockdown agenda. A spokesperson said the messages had been made available to the, of the official public inquiry into the government's response to the pandemic. Instead of spinning and leaks, we need a full, comprehensive inquiry to ensure we are as well prepared as we can be for the next pandemic, whenever it comes, the spokesperson said. The Telegraph has been handed more than 100,000 WhatsApp messages linked to Mr Hancock's time as health secretary at the height of the pandemic. Now, the text messages were passed to the newspaper <coughs> by Miss Oakeshott, Talk TV's international editor, who has been critical of lockdowns, and she was given copies of the texts while helping Mr Hancock write his book. Can you believe that? Right, so she, she's talked to his international editor. She's very critical of the lockdowns, and she was given these texts while helping Mr. Hancock write his book. And now, the BBC has not seen or independently verified the WhatsApp messages nor the context in which they were sent. The Telegraph has published a string of stories based on the messages sent by Mr. Hancock, other former prime ministers or ministers and advisors of the government of former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And after a day of rancorous debate about the government's response to the pandemic, Ms Oakeshaw appeared on Talk TV to discuss the decision to leak the messages with presenter Piers Morgan. Now, here's also an interesting point. Ms Oakeshaw was asked by uh, Piers Morgan if she had signed an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, which is a legally binding contract used to prevent the disclosure of information. To which she replied, yes, she had signed one. When asked by Piers Morgan if she had deliberately broken that, McSoakshot replied, I have in the public interest. <coughs> the journalist said that the public interest in publishing the messages was overwhelming, adding she was concerned that the public inquiry would be a whitewash. When Morgan asked Ms. Oakeshott if she had heard from Mr. Hancock since publication, she said, yes, I have. I have received a somewhat menacing message at 1.20 in the morning. I'm not going to repeat what was in the message. I think you can easily summarise whether Matt Hancock is my friend at this point. Mr. Oakeshaw also stressed that the Telegraph had not selectively quoted Mr. Hancock. So it's very, um, well, very um, unique, I think, is the best word that comes to mind of the circumstance. I don't know. Is it, What's your take on this, Brother Nafish? Do you think it's correct? Um, the fact that those messages... So basically, for our listeners that are just joining in, um, Matt Hadcock was trying to publish his book called The Pandemic Diaries, right? He's trying mm -hmm. to rebuild his image after all of the scandal he had with um, a lady in his office and what have you, and he resigned. And whilst publishing or conjuring up this book, he sent a number of texts to Talk TV's international editor. Okay. And she saw some of those texts and thought um, a lot of things were wrong. And now she's pub she's published and leaked those texts to the media. And the, I mean, it's, all very um, all very sudden for Mr. Hancock to even realise how this has happened because she was helping him with publish his book and now it's all sort of flipped on its head. 
And she also signed an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, so a legally binding contract, which means she couldn't release those statements or those messages. What's your take on this? I think in my opinion, a lot of it is always to do with uh, either publicity, mm. revenge, or uh, money's involved sometimes. It could be. And uh, I mean, you should give your... But do you think those... Do you think naturally, I mean, she's saying that it's all in the public interest. The, the messages, whatever is in those messages, mm-hmm. is ba- effectively um, contradictory to what Matt Hancock was, the, the statements that he was issuing. I mean, the fact of the matter is that I think those messages uh, were sent or that correspondence was made in confidence. So yeah, I think it, it should be given its due privacy. Mm. Uh, to say that it's of public interest, I think even if it is of public interest, I mean, it doesn't matter that um, you should still give it its due privacy. If there was an agreement, I think, the, but that that's my uh, take on yeah, that. I think I would have to agree. I think there's a lot of things that are in the public interest, yeah. but we aren't aware of. Mm-hmm. And you know, there could be um, potential threats you know, to our nation. Exactly. Uh, we, you, sh- you know, some would argue that we would be sh- that should be aware of, but we aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, s- for other other um, politicians or um, office holders in the government, it's it's it, it, or or other people in generally mm. who work with these people, it also could uh, um, alarm them. You know, could their um, messages or mm, private yeah, conversations exactly. be leaked? The fact that. I don't know if you remember, you, you must do. The fact that <coughs> CCTV recording from Matt Hancock's office when he was the health secretary mm. was leaked. Yeah. You know, it's incredible mm. that a, a, a cabinet minister's um, office recording was leaked in which it showed that he, the affair that he handled that, that yeah. individual. And again, that I mean, that brings me back to my first point that, you know, it's a lot of it. It's to do with um, revenge or money or um, and gender. So yeah, there, there's some sort of uh, negative agenda mm. uh, always linked to it. I guess that's why they say there's no friends in politics. I mean, absolutely, it's yeah. quite it's quite blatant, um, yeah. quite um, quite shocking. At least for Mr. Hancock. Mm. Right. In other news. Um, Marks and Spencer's has apologised after displaying daffodils alongside spring onions in one of its stores. BBC reports that the flowers, which can be poisonous if eaten, were displayed in the fruit and veg aisle under a seasonal favourites banner. Batonist and presenter James Wong drew attention to the display on Twitter, warning that eating daffodils is like swallowing a box of tiny needles. And Marks and Spencer's spokesperson said it was a genuine error in one of our stores daffodil stems which are widely sold in supermarkets at this time of year can bear resemblance to some vegetables at first glance public health england wrote a to retailers in 2015 warning about the potentially nasty consequences if there was a mix-up with how they are labeled it said they contain toxic alkaloids which can cause severe vomiting noting 27 poisoning cases in the previous year. Health officials believe daffodil poisoning led to 10 hospitalizations in Bristol in 2012 because of their similarity to chive used in Chinese cooking. 
Mr. Wong said the error was originally spotted by his mum, who took a picture of the display, and he said the poisoning caused by accidentally eating them can be excruciating and urgent marks expenses to improve training for staff. So, yeah, if you do see daffodils alongside the fruit and veg aisle, then make sure you stay away and at least you don't consume it. Um with that regard right we'll take a short break and after the break we will continue with the news and see what else is happening um stay tuned Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamualaikum, may peace be upon you. Welcome back to the breakfast show here at the Voice of Islam. So before the break, we're going over some of the highlights um, of the newspapers. Say highlights, more of the, um, the headlines rather, um, and some of the uh, interesting stories with regards to one Mr. Hancock. But it's now high time that we do move to our first segment of this morning. And a very interesting one, and dare I say a, a dying tradition. Um, have to start reading and keep reading, especially this tying in with World Book Day. Approaching or approached? Um, that, I believe, would be the question which we will undoubtedly surely answer. Um or I believe actually it's today. Um, well, in any case, we'll find out. And as usual, we always have these expert guest callers with us who will also help us understand and navigate this topic in greater length and detail. So that will also be an extra factor to consider. Um, right, so World Book Day, as we mentioned. Um, I guess really the gist of the story being about the the habit of reading many of us, I presume, consider to be a difficult one. And an even more difficult one to start. And at least on this segment, um, we will be trying to help you getting your hands on a book and giving you tips and tricks to finish it um, and really to pick another one up. So what is World Book Day and why is it celebrated, Bolanavis? So World Book Day is an annual celebration of books and reading that takes place on April 23rd. Uh, The day was established by UNESCO in 1995 to promote reading, publishing and copyright around the world. The date was chosen as a symbolic tribute to several prominent authors, including William Shakespeare, uh, who 
died on 23rd April in 1616. From an Islamic perspective, reading and seeking knowledge are highly encouraged and praised in Islam. The first word of the Quran revealed to the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was read, um, which highlights the importance of seeking knowledge. Muslims are encouraged to read the Quran and the Sunnah as well as other beneficial books to gain knowledge and improve the understanding of Islam and the world uh, around them. So uh, I think many people will be wondering what are some reasons for why people don't read Brother Shaykh? Yeah, well, there are several reasons actually um, why people don't regularly read. I, I, I do presume people do read, but not the basis of, or at least not with regularity. Um, some people may find it difficult to carve out the time. Nowadays, everybody's really glued up on either um, their work, family commitments, what have you, and especially good old social media. So that doesn't really help. Um, and, the, and many of the people actually quite frankly find it boring or simply just don't enjoy it, which is a shame. And on that very point, I do believe we have our first guest caller this morning. Everyone welcome and assalamu alaikum to Professor Karen Coates. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Doctor. Um, Dr. Karen Coates is a professor, professor of children's literature at the University of Cambridge, where she directs a Centre for Research in Children's Literature. Prior to moving to the UK, she taught children's and young adult literature at Illinois State University for 21 years. She is the author and co-editor of seven books, including the Handbook of Research on Children's and Young Adult Literature and the Bloomsbury Introduction to children's and young adult literature. Uh, thank you so much once again for joining us, Dr. Karen Coates. Um, as someone who dedicates their time to understanding and reading literature of various genres, what would you say the most important part of reading literature would be and why? Well, you know, I've, I've, I thought about this um, and I might ask it, or I might answer this in a couple layers. So, of course, one of the most important aspects is joy. I mean, we, we are a lonely culture now. We've become more and more lonely, even though that we're more and more super connected. But we also um, don't seem to be enjoying ourselves very much, <laughs> which is sad. And so a lot of times um, <clears throat> you want to pick a book that was, is just going to be something that you enjoy. And that can be any genre, that, um, and, and, it, and it will be different genres depending on what mood you're in. But in terms of importance, so, so I think that joy and affect and emotion are important. But the other thing that's important is that this gives you an opportunity to live more than one life. And the more books you read, the more adventures you have, because we, this is the way our imagination works. We engage vicariously in other people's feelings and in other people's lives and in other people's adventures. So this gives us a way to, expand, to, to live a more expansive life. And to make friends with characters that stick with us and teach us things that we wouldn't, that we're not going to have the opportunity to learn in our day-to-day -day existence. So two things: joy and learning about other lives, and and in having a, a richer, fuller life. Most definitely, um, and it's I think I think that's a key here: having that element of 
really having a more fulfilling life. Um, how do you believe one can encourage children? I think that's a, that's more, I guess, of an arduous task to, because nowadays I think children have the opportunity to view anything on the tablets, their phones. There's so many in- interesting cartoons for them to delve into. How can we really encourage our children and young adults to read then? Well, what's interesting is that different um, parts of your brain are engaged in different um, activities, right? So, so one of the things that happens when you're reading, when you're watching a film, you're getting somebody else's vision. But when you're reading a book, you're creating your own film in your head. And so it, the, the scope for your imagination is much wider. I mean, you're going to be drawing on your own memories. Say, for instance, you see a character looks a certain way. They have brown hair. They have brown eyes. That is what um, researchers have called optic poverty. <laughs> you know, anybody, you, you have to fill in all of those gaps yourself. So it's a much more engaging process. Now, I'm not saying that watching a film is not fascinating in that in that very technical term, where it actually fastens you to that um, screen. But it's not as active as reading and having to create those images inside your own head. So part of that, <clears throat> how do we encourage kids to do that, is, is to encourage, well, first of all, they have to find the good books and they have to be able to choose them themselves. Um, so that's one of the things that I think is really, really important is that a lot of times kids are turned off to reading because they only read the things that, that someone else asks them to mm. read. And, and they feel like they have more of a sense of agency when they are allowed to choose their own media. So why not take that desire to have some agency over what you read and encourage that, you know, take your kid to a bookshop, take, you know, take them to the library, make it, make it a weekly ritual that you go to the library and you're allowed to pick out 10 books or you're allowed to pick out, well, that's picture books, 10 picture books, or you're allowed to pick out three novels and, and don't censor them. I mean, we, we can't be afraid of what they're reading. We can ask them questions about it. We can encourage them to, to share with us what experiences that they're having. We can read what they're reading, not to judge them or, or, or tell them that this is a bad book, but to say, wow, you know, I really like this part of it, but this part made me uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, so, so it becomes part of the family conversation with a trusted adult or with um, a parent that, that I'm interested in the things that you're interested in. I'm interested in what's going on inside your head. So but share with me, share with me what you're thinking. So I think part of it has to do, again, to give a little summary here, <laughs> give them some choice into what they're reading. Don't judge them. And, but, but do ask them questions about that because they are being critical as they read mm-hmm. and they need a place to share that. Yeah, and Dr. Karen, I would also like to know, um, is there any uh, genres of books that you would recommend to other people? I mean, um, I think people want to know what have you seen to be the most popular? That That's going to vary with age, okay? So, so I would really encourage parents, and, and this is something that parents don't often do, but um, when you're reading with your small children, choose choose rhyming texts, 
choose books that um, that engage their bodies in kind of that rhythmic bounce that you get from a rhyming book. Um, you know, there are books like There's a Wocket in My Pocket, <laughs> but then there are also a lot of other um, books that that are written, they're picture books, but they're written in rhyme. So they have bright, fully saturated colors. They have antic energy in their storytelling and they have rhyming text. And that, so that's for the littles. But as they're growing older, again, they go through these different, um, I'm gonna call them existential concerns. So they need to, you, you need to think about, you need to know your kid. You need to know that the person that you're, that you're, trying to get to read and you need to find books that will engage with them. So um, this is a huge generalization, but boys tend to favor realism from about the time they're eight or nine years old because they're looking for how they can make a difference in the world. And they want to know, well, um, how did, how, how do I become a sports star? How do I become a scientist? How do I become um, whatever it is that I find interesting. So they're looking for realistic texts that show how the world actually works. Whereas girls, and again, this is hugely general, this is a generalization. So if you know your kid, they might not be at all interested in this, but girls tend to like more psychologically driven novels. How do I maintain friendships when I, when things are starting, when we're starting to change, I'm starting to change. Um, I'm starting, to, my world is getting bigger. Hmm. And I'm and I'm starting to understand myself a little differently. I'm understanding that I have some desires that I don't share with other people, and by desires I mean just you know that I have thoughts that I keep to myself. You know, little kids don't keep many of their thoughts to themselves, but <laughs> as we get older, we <laughs> tend to develop a sense of our own interiority, and so we're interested in other people's interiority and what they're thinking. So. Boys tend to go for more plot-driven adventures, but also realism. And, and, and I'll just say that I said boys, but some readers, other readers are more focused on the psychological dimensions of what people are thinking and how relationships are formed and how they break. And then you get into young adults. And my generalization here is that children want to know how the world fits together Young adults want to learn all the different ways it can fall apart. So this is where we get into um, protest novels, psychological thrillers, um, you know, books about people who are undergoing difficult physical and mental health pro challenges, worlds that are falling apart, and, and how they can intervene in that or what kind of agency they have to make a difference in their world. So as you go, your tastes change as you, um, then there, um, I'm going to say this, this is because I usually get, I used to get accused of being, of reading like an adult. <laughs> and that's because I just still love language. I love the way words sound. I love the, a, a beautifully written sentence. So you're also going to find people who, who like literature for, the quality of the prose. And I know that sounds very eggheady, but it's really not. If we have, if you have a musical intelligence, if you have a, a, um, a mathematical intelligence, you're going to be attracted to a well-made sentence, just like you're attracted to a well-played symphony. So 
there are all kinds of reasons. The, the key is to rely on your librarians. They have a mantra. Librarians have a mantra, which is the right book for the right child at the right time. Um, and we tend to think, oh, this kid's going through a divorce or parents are going through a divorce. They need a book about divorce. Probably not. They probably need a book that's funny. They probably need a book that takes them out of their reality into someplace else where they can focus and feel good. Because when your world is falling apart, you need to feel good. But if your world's doing pretty well, then you're looking for something to challenge you about how you can fix a world that's broken. Yeah, no, exactly. That's a lot. Yeah, no, 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 you're, you're bang on. Um, because it's so important nowadays, it, it seems as if it, as if it is a dying tradition. You know, less and less children. I mean, I may be wrong, but um, from at least from where we you know, we stand, or, or at least are in the circles, I mean, I hardly see, myself included, you know, the the interest in, uh, in especially in our young, um, and as we do progress into our you know, teenage years and young adults, this this sort of tradition of um, not being part of our lives, which is a shame. But I guess the, the steps and the, the the points that you mentioned are very much so pertinent and valid. You know, going and taking our children to libraries would be an excellent way to bringing about that connection um, with books, um, especially from a young age, because if we can at a young age, then hopefully that develops and, uh, and flourishes as, you know, we grow older. But thank you so much. Uh, can I also say? Yes. Well, can I can I also say one more thing? The only thing that the only research that has has made a reliable that's always reliable for anybody about getting kids to read, and that is access to books, hmm. whether they own them or whether they have regular um, opportunities to visit libraries. The more books you have, <laughs> I know that's not very green, but mm-hmm. the more books you have the more likely that's what you're going to pick up when you have some time, when you have five minutes, when you're waiting, when you're bored. Mm. Part of the reason why we spend so much time on our phones is because they're right there. But if you have books that are right there, that gives you an option. Mm. Exactly. So accessibility to books is is the key. Definitely. No, wise words indeed. Thank you so much, Dr. Karen Coates. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you this morning with us. And um, hopefully we can also have you in the very near future. Okay, well, thank you so much for um, for reaching out. Oh, an absolute pleasure. And I wish you all the best. And you too. Thank Bye-bye. you so much. Bye-bye. Dr. Karen Coates, Press of Children's Literature at the University of Cambridge. Um, once again, thank you so much. And um, for our listeners, at least that I do hope was very intriguing and at least thought-provoking. Um, but we'll continue with the segment after this short break. Stay tuned.
You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome back to the Breakfast Show here at the Voice of Islam. Just before the break, we had the pleasure of speaking with one Dr. Karen Coates. Um, he was really telling us on how to, um, I guess, bring about the cultural reading or instilling this culture again or rejuvenating, dare I say, within our children and indeed our young adults and some very poignant and brilliant tips for our listeners to have listened to. Um, I guess moving on, um, Brother Nafis, we did touch upon this with the professor, but what are some benefits of reading books? Because um, I'm sure there must be many. Absolutely, yeah. So reading books has numerous benefits for both the mind and the soul. Uh, for <coughs> for example, excuse me. For example, reading can improve a cognitive function and memory, as well as uh, reducing stress and anxiety. It can also increase empathy and understanding of others, as well as uh, expand one's knowledge and uh, perspective on uh, various topics. Additionally, reading can serve as a form of escapism and entertainment, allowing individuals to unwind and relax. And Islam has given a lot of importance to mm. uh, seeking knowledge. And one of the best ways of seeking knowledge is, of course, reading. Islam is also emphasized on uh, reading and studying the the Holy Quran uh, uh, regularly on a daily basis. Mm. And um, the the hadith of the Holy Prophet, this is one of the sayings of the Holy Prophet, is that it is compulsory on every believer to um, to gain knowledge hmm. from the time that he's, you know, uh, very very young, up to the point that he's very very old. So seeking knowledge throughout. Uh, a, both, bit, yeah, a believer's for, life, yeah, for for men and female, right? I guess. For for men and women, hmm. absolutely, and it's it's uh, you know. It's not just emphasized it for uh, women or just men. It's for both, absolutely. In fact, it's given a very, uh, a very unique role to women. In fact, because Islam says that uh, women, if 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 women are educated and mm. they are um, well educated, uh, uh, so they will uh, uh, bring up the future gen- generation. They mm. will bring up leaders. They so women produce leaders of the world mm. in other words and um, that's why uh, the hadith of the holy prophet may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him also states that um, uh, heaven lies under the feet of your mothers mm. absolutely so yeah, yeah. some profound words indeed and the, you know like you mentioned the benefits of reading being um, with regards to well having effects on the mind and the soul um, and indeed on Expanding one's knowledge and perspective, I guess that's that's key, um, especially in, in today's day and age where disinformation is so readily available. And I guess people just take other statements or things that they read online to be the gospel or the truth. Um, but the things, what are some other good tips to get into reading consistently? Um, I guess we all have our <coughs> um, phases in life where you know. Like for example, New Year's resolution, or mm-hmm. you know, which only lasts for a couple of hours, dare I say, or for many, you know, a couple of weeks at the best. Um, so, how can we constantly and consistently um, get into reading and stay there? Okay, so you start small. Begin by setting a goal to read for just ten to fifteen minutes each day, and gradually increase the amount of time mm-hmm. as you become more comfortable. 
uh, choose a book that um, is in accordance with your interests and uh, reading level and don't be afraid to try different genres uh, and try to find something that works for you. I would also say one important thing is to be consistent. Mm. I think because consistency is very important. Um, again, it takes me back to the word of the Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that uh, any task that is done with consistency uh, has got great uh, value is a, is a great virtue mm. so uh, consistency is the main thing obviously you start off small um if you're not into the habit of reading uh, again if it's setting small goals in the beginning would help you and encourage you to uh, move on uh, and so on and so forth <clears throat> should definitely create a uh, reading routine by means of that set aside a specific time and place for reading each day such as before bed or during your morning com- commute. Um, try to eliminate uh, as many distractions as possible. So that means to turn off your phone, uh, other electronic devices. Uh, try to find a quiet place. Uh, and definitely try to read without um, interruptions. Uh, I think, uh, again... Uh, all of this goes hand in hand with the uh, consistency. Consistency is key to success in any aspect of life, whether it is in personal relationships, career goals, or self-improvement. Um, consistency builds discipline, focus, and resilience, and it helps you develop good habits that become second nature. Uh, when you're consistent, you're able to make steady progress towards your goals and achieve long-term success. And uh, as Muslims, we are taught, again, that um, to be consistent in our worship and deeds, and Allah will reward those who are consistent in their good deeds with success and blessings in this life and hereafter. Um, This also, uh, in fact, reading and gaining knowledge, uh, I think it also takes me to... um, uh, to encourage our listeners to read the literature and books and the teach and read the teachings of our of the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community the promised messiah uh islam and peace and blessings of Allah be upon him um the holy prophet may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him said that in the latter days when the messiah will come there will be a time where um he will distribute wealth in such abundance that people will not um, accept it. And uh, by, by wealth, it doesn't mean physically, you know, money or gold or silver or diamonds or and whatnot. It clearly uh, indicates towards the knowledge and towards the writings that the Messiah in the latter days will give out to people. The promised Messiah has written uh, endless books uh, there's so much literature that's available in different languages in this day and age and if we um take into consideration take this hadith into consideration uh, you know it's it's i think it's uh, we should think about where we stand are we of those people who um are not accepting it as it's mentioned in the hadith or are we part of those who are trying to uh you know, make use and benefit f- 
from the teachings of the Promised Messiah. Definitely. Um, and for our, at least for our non-Muslim listeners, they can certainly find more about what the Amdi Muslim um, stands for on our website www.alislam.org and indeed find um, the writings of the Prophet. So, you know, bringing it back to the topic at hand, I think it's like Brother Nafis mentioned, um, paramount to make sure that we, you know, whenever we do embark upon this journey of reading, that we do um, do so with a level of consistency and try setting small goals. But we are fast approaching the 8 o'clock news, so let's take a break for that now. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Asalaamu Alaikum, may peace be upon you. Welcome back to the breakfast show here at the Voice of Islam. Before the news break, we were talking about the, I guess, the attribute on reading, um, and how it's sort of being phased out of our youth. But it's now time that we do move on to our second segment. Um, a similar one. Um, at the same time, a different one. It's about the best uh, comedies that Shakespeare wrote, or at least um, discussing the comedy amongst the tragedy. It's his correct title. And some of the gist of the story being about the tragedies which are associated with Shakespeare. Um, and so we'll discuss, at least in this segment, its impact on the comedy genre and what made his comedies so amazingly interesting. And you know, for some of our listeners, I guess they were perhaps unaware that Shakespeare had even written comedies or the two were ever aligned. So what is a comedy and what are its conventions? Well, many comedies are based in places where there are always a lot of people, like schools, offices, or sometimes even generic public places. And this allows space for characters to make full of themselves to put themselves in an awkward situation which adds to the comedy of the film it's also important for there to be many locations because it allows for there to be more characters for the main characters to interact with it's common for comedy films to prey off off offensive stereotypes usually including in due of people who are completely different so that the comedy can bounce off of the other character um so what were Shakespeare's most famous comedies? Well, Shakespeare's comedies, or rather the plays of Shakespeare, that are usually categorised as comedies, are generally identical um, as plays full of fun, irony and dazzling wordplay. And they're also abound in disguises and mistaken identities with the very convoluted plots that are difficult to follow with very quantified endings um, some of them include all's well that ends well the comedy of errors measure for measure the merchant of venice a midsummer night's dream and brother nafis what made them so interesting um and what did showcase um about its time so comedy was traditionally a lower genre that uh, than tragedy or history and so these comedies by Shakespeare's uh, contemporaries justified themselves by their uh, satirical ambition. Um, satire was a higher genre that other kinds of comedy uh, commended by classical authors as morally improving. Uh, city comedies had moral 
purpose, they mocked current follies and vices. And on that very note, um, I am pleased to introduce our first guest caller for this segment. Um alaikum, may peace be upon you, to one Professor Robert. Professor, are you with us? I'm with us, yeah. yeah I'm with oh, you. thank you Hello. so much for joining us, Professor Robert. Yep. Um, Professor Robert um, is a professor of the Theatre at Guildford School of Acting at the University of Surrey and a Shakespeare scholar who has published extensively on plays as well as, well as on theatre, cinema and popular culture. And his most recent book is called About Shakespeare and is currently editing The Winter's Tale for Harder Performance Editions. Uh, once again, thank you so much, Professor. Could you kindly help us, um, and indeed our listeners, to understand the historical, political and social context in which Shakespeare's comedies were written and how it influenced his style of playwriting and production? Fully loaded uh, question for you. <laughs> it's quite a good question. Oh, yeah, let, let's say... Oh, so Shakespeare was spent most of his life, uh, his writing life, um, under the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. Uh, it's it sort of second half of the 16th into the 17th century. I suppose if you want to think about what kind of world uh, he was living in, England during that period was, relatively speaking, I suppose a sort of stable country, um, kind of peaceful country uh, in terms of uh, not sort of too sort of active in terms of war. Um, and they are a relatively prosperous nation, I suppose. That um, And Shakespeare was... Uh, spent his working life in London, uh, which was at that time really sort of establishing itself as kind of the, the sort of hub of global trade. Um, so there is this sort of, I, I suppose, sort of overall sense of uh, living in a sort of fairly calm, ordered world. Uh, but I suppose the, the way that that is maintained um, is that, uh, that England, during the period of Elizabeth and of King James, who succeeded her, um, was a very kind of hierarchical um, and quite authoritarian uh, society to live in, um, that uh, religious conformity was sort of pretty strongly enforced in terms of uh, Protestantism being the state religion. Um, and the, uh, the the big sort of worry for sort of, uh, those in power was that uh, was really about Catholicism, seen as being not only a kind of heretical uh, faith, but uh, one that was associated with uh, subversion uh, and um, disloyalty. So, so the way that the the kind of order uh, of the society that Shakespeare lived in was, was um, kind of sustained through state surveillance, through uh, torture, through public execution, through all those kind of mechanisms. So, um, but Shakespeare himself was um, very kind of canny at kind of uh, I suppose kind of uh, manoeuvring his way through this world and. Um, is in a kind of world where if you, if you say the wrong kind of thing, you, you end up in prison. Um, and it's an example of a play called The Isle of Dogs that was um, written around about 1594. And uh, the authors of that play were imprisoned. The play was banned um, and there was very strict censorship. But Shakespeare uh, was very good at not really letting you know what he thought about anything uh, in matters of, of, of politics, at least. Um so, and, and with regards to actually politics, um, do you think that Shakespeare took any inspiration from any other literary figures in history um, to write his plays? Oh, certainly. The, the, um, well, one thing to remember is, is that um, 
the the kind of art of writing uh, during Shakespeare's time was was all about imitation. That it was it was less important to be original than to be a good imitator, and you, you kind of learned this um, from school onwards. So Shakespeare, as the son of a, a well-to-do businessman in Stratford, would probably almost certainly have attended the the King Edward Grammar School and. Um, grammar school was all about, uh, the curriculum was all about grammar, and that was Latin grammar and Greek grammar. And what you were trained to do was to write in imitation of, uh, for example, writers, uh, the Roman, uh, the two Roman playwrights that uh, really influenced the early Shakespeare were Plautus and Terence. Um, and he would have been uh, writing in imitation of Plautus and Terence. And there were all sorts of other writers and throughout Shakespeare's career, uh, he had this kind of magpie uh, habit of just really raiding and stealing whatever writing he could find. But if we, if we give the specific example of Plautus, that one of Shakespeare's earliest plays, The Comedy of Errors, um, is quite directly based on a play by Plautus, The Nackmai. And in Plautus's play, it's a, a kind of comedy of mistaken identity involving a pair of twins. Uh, these, these two, uh, and, and in that play, the uh, one of the twins has a servant and there's all sorts of confusions about them getting confused for each other and then it all sort of sorts out at the end. But Shakespeare clearly uh, was drawn to this comedy but thought, I'm going to go one better. So um, rather than having one set of twins, he has two sets of twins. So they're, they're the masters and the servants. And then so he doubles the, the kind of comedy, doubles the confusion. Um, and that seems to be kind of typical of how Shakespeare worked. That he, he sort of took something that interested him or that he admired or who saw potential in and thought, OK, I'm going to go one better, um, at least with that. So so in terms of um, it's difficult. when you say who was Shakespeare influenced by that, um, I think he was he made use of everything that came his way. That's very interesting. But I guess nowadays copyright infringement may have halted such. Um, yes, exactly. Such ideas. It, it, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's what we would we might think of as plagiarism. Um, um, and that was perfectly not not just perfectly acceptable, it's actively encouraged. Oh wow, That's, uh, that is news. Um, and I guess, how do you think Shakespeare's comedies then um, influence the the cinematic and theatrical and the literary worlds? Then, oh, I think it's not so much Shakespeare's comedy that Shakespeare is uh, was writing in a, a tradition of comedy that goes back to the Greeks and the Romans. Mm. Um, but uh, if you think the the subject of Greek and Roman comedy is sex and romance, you know, uh, and uh, the, the 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 subject matter of Shakespeare's comedies is um, technically it's always about whether the boy is going to get the girl, and usually there's there's something that uh, gets in the way of that that complicates that, um, and uh, the the sort of classical uh, f- uh, format of comedy is is that. The, the, the young lovers being uh, thwarted usually by a parent uh, who stands in the way, and then they, they manage to sort of find their way through and, and everything's reconciled. And, and Shakespeare sort of takes over that model um, in terms of romance. But where, where Shakespeare is, complicates this uh, is that his happy endings are never quite uh, complete, that there's always some note of uh, doubt or... or somebody who's left out that somebody who's, who's not sort of uh wrapped up into the, the general kind of feel-good ending um for example in 12th night malvolio is, is a example of that so in terms mm. of 
modern comedy, I suppose the the, the obvious kind of uh, descendant would be uh, rom-coms, you know, the sort of film rom-coms, things like uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral or uh, Love Actually. I mean, it's the most obvious things but, um, where it's, it's all about the, the comedy of people kind of getting together or not quite getting together and it all turning out okay in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and on that sort of topic of modern comedy, um, any plays that you would recommend people to watch or read? And if so, what plays and why? Uh, I, could, I could recommend plays of Shakespeare uh, rather than sort of modern ones. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the Shakespeare play, I mean, there, there are the ones that everybody, I think, would have heard of if they haven't read them, like Miss and Night's Dream and so on. I, I think the ones I'd recommend are probably the, the lesser known plays, uh, are the ones that are a lot less often performed. So, um, the play I'm really uh, so, uh, so preoccupied with at the moment is The Winter's Tale, which is a very late play by Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a play that, that is not staged very often because it's quite difficult. And it's quite difficult because it starts with a character called Leontes, who for no reason at all uh, d- d- decides that his wife, uh, Hermione, is, is being unfaithful to him with his uh, friend, uh, best friend. And and the, the first half of this play it brings about the most terrible sort of tragedy that uh, their son dies, uh, she, he thinks, dies. Uh, they, their uh, young baby daughter is, is sent off, he thinks, to, to be abandoned to die, and then, but she, she's not. Um, and then the second half of the play brings about this reconciliation uh, and forgiveness and this most kind of extraordinary... Uh, happy ending, which is really hard fought and, and uh, well deserved. It, it, it's like the Leontes does the most terrible things and is things that are uh, unforgivable, and yet he is forgiven. And I think that that's the in that that way that that is a really profound uh, comedy. Mm. No, it sounds very much so interesting. Um... And we'll definitely give that a watch, or at least a read. Uh, well, Professor Robert, thank you so much for being with us this morning um, and for taking the time to take this interview, and hopefully we can hear from you in the very near future. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank uh, you so much. Thank, thank you so you. much. Robert, um, Professor Robert, um, professor of theatre at Guildford School of Acting, University of Surrey, um, joining us. Um, we'll take a short break, and after the break, we'll continue with the sixth segment, so stay tuned. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. 
joining me on the line today, we have Dr. Erin Sullivan, who is a cultural historian and literary scholar interested in the nature of emotional experience and its relation to art, in particular Shakespeare's. Her research splits into two distinct, nonetheless related strands, the cultural history of the emotions, especially sadness and the performance of Shakespeare's play, uh, Shakespeare today, excuse me. Uh, Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be upon you, and thank you for joining us today, um, Dr. Sullivan. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, so we have been taught that tragic plays often evoke feelings such as pity and fear. What emotions uh, do Shakespeare's comedies evoke, and what effect does this um, have on the audience? It's interesting. You know, comedy comedy in Shakespeare's time bears a lot of uh, similarities to comedy today. People wanted to go see a show and laugh and have a good time. Uh, but there are also some differences. So you do get funny jokes and humor and the idea that the, the comedy should delight the audience. But comedy in Shakespeare's time also means you know, basically human drama. Um, it's not it's not tragic like the the tragedies. Um, so typically no one dies, but it still is about sometimes about conflict, about working through problems, and about how humans live with one another. So I think that means for audiences, you also sometimes get confusion and even discomfort when watching Shakespeare's comedies as you watch these people work out their problems and try to figure out how they can live with one another and also live with themselves. Uh, definitely. Um, do you believe Shakespeare had a very good psychological um, understanding of the human psyche in the way that he um, evokes emotions in his audiences through his tragic and comedic plays? And if so, can you give us example of examples of how he's um, evoked such emotions, please? Sure, that's a great question. I think, you know, it's hard to say exactly with um, what Shakespeare was like, but his plays suggest that he really understood that people are complicated. Um, and that everyone is driven by mixed emotions and often competing emotions, and that no one is purely good and no one is purely bad. There's all of this mix going on. Um, so I think something that's really exciting about Shakespeare's plays is that he lets his characters express those complicated emotions and the tension that they create in really vivid ways. Um, and in the comedies, there's lots of different emotions circling around, but comedies are often about love. In Shakespeare's time, comedies are typically about different people falling in and out of love, and they usually end with some marriages. Um, and like I said before, that's often really delightful, can be really funny. Um, but I think Shakespeare also understood that love isn't always a comfortable experience and that it can also be kind of scary and, and you know, thrilling and exciting as well at times. So, I mean, in a play like A Midsummer Night's Dream, that's one of Shakespeare's kind of most joyous comedies. It can be really funny in performance. You have a character like Helena. She's a young woman who's been in love with a man who's now left her for someone else. Um, and she has these lines that can be really funny, but they are also kind of dark. She talks about how if he won't love her anymore, she, she'll be his slave, she'll be his dog, she'll follow him around. Um, and she follows him into the dangerous woods, even though he keeps telling her to go away. And the way that Shakespeare writes the lines, they are funny because they're so over the top. They can be very slapstick. But they also bring out this kind of unsettling side of love, that it can change us 
you know, kind of turn us into someone who isn't ourselves, and it can also prompt us to put ourselves in really dangerous situations. Um, and that's in the middle of kind of one of the truly funny comedies. There are other plays that are categorized as comedies in Shakespeare's time, like Measure for Measure, that often today, when we see them in performance, don't really seem that funny. Um, it's very, you know, serious and threatening world in Measure for Measure, where you have this, um, this ruler who's trying to clean up the city. Um, he's you know, really strict. He's punishing people. And he's also predatory and he's preying on this young woman. Um, and at the end of that play, um, we have, you know, I won't spoil it in case people go see it or read it, but something really shocking happens. And the main character, this young woman, she doesn't respond. Um, and, you know, in performance, there are different things actors can do to try to tell us what's happening, whether what kind of conclusion we're getting. But it can be really unsettling. And I think that's an extreme example of how in Shakespeare's comedies, um, Shakespeare's thinking about how complicated emotions are and how something that might seem like a good thing, like a, a marriage or falling in love, can actually be really troubling, um, especially if we don't hear from one person exactly how they feel about it. Thank you for that. Um, and keeping you on the theme of comedies, um, what was the cultural backdrop within which Shakespeare wrote his comedies uh, in, and how did this have an impact on the way his comedies were written and perceived then and uh, through time? I think the comedies often really work on exploring the structure of communities, the way that people relate to one another within families, within society, the relationship between um, people of different classes. And in Shakespeare's time, there's lots of things that shape this. Um, that Shakespeare definitely was living through a time of great religious change. So, you know, the country had long been a Catholic country. Before Shakespeare is born, it changes to a Protestant country, and then it changes back to a Catholic country, and then it changes again to a Protestant country. And that's the point that Shakespeare's living in. So there's lots of different competing ideas about um, about religious practice, uh, belief and observance, and that shapes a lot of his plays, especially a play like a lot of his tragedies actually have something like Hamlet has a sort of Catholic elements and Protestant elements side by side. But I think with the comedies, perhaps what we, is most informative is the, the way that gender roles were understood in Shakespeare's time. Um, Shakespeare lived in a time of pretty strict gender roles. It's not to say that um, there was no bending of them, but you know, men were definitely in charge. And, um, and, and in the comedies, because they are about courtship and about love and relationships, they're often kind of trying to explore how the roles of men and the roles of women work together. Um, and so, again, you know, an example uh, of one of his comedies is The Taming of the Shrew, which is about the shrew is this really unruly, emotional, um, explosive woman. And her husband or her dad says, gosh, I really need to get her married so then I can marry off her younger sister. So he gets this pretty... Um, uh, I don't know, funny, but also at times quite intense and intimidating man to come and quote unquote tame his daughter. And that really is a play that is about, um, it's kind of yes. a comedy of gender and the sexes. But again, Shakespeare really brings out the the scary side at times and, you know, is exploring things about consent, about how people live side by side, how they struggle for power. Some performances of that play have explored the extent to which in you know, in different directions, it might be an abusive relationship. It, it kind of has a lot of complications in it. So you asked as well about how these this cultural backdrop in Shakespeare's time um, affects 
you know, how it's perceived then, but also through time, let's say in our own time. I think now when we read those plays and, and when we see them performed, we're grappling with how to how to understand those gender roles now. Um, and also often kind of trying to find where the female voice is, because Shakespeare's female characters tend to say less, and there's a practical reason for that, that they were played by men. All all actors were men in Shakespeare's time, um, and it was younger men who played the female role, so boys and kind of young adults. And they're often less, you know, they're less experienced, they're apprentices, so they, the female roles are often smaller, but they are still really important. So I think today when we're seeing these plays, we're kind of trying to explore where where the balance of power is and looking for the female voice in the plays and kind of seeing how how these different partners relate to one another and try to find happiness together. Um, and I wanted to ask you, you know, what do you think has made Shakespeare's plays, specifically his comedies, so resistant to time? And why are we still watching them? And do you think his plays evoke similar emotions in modern audiences? More great questions. Thank you. I think um, I think it's that... Shakespeare's appreciation of complexity of the gray areas in life that keep his plays um, relevant and and interesting to modern audiences, even when there are things in the plays that are very distant, whether it's jokes or ideas about how people behave or anything like that. Um, There's a line in a Shakespeare comedy that I've worked on a lot recently called All's Well That Ends Well, and the line is, the web of our life is of a mingled yarn, good and ill together. And that, that mixing of good and ill we see throughout his plays. But then I think another couple of things that help make the plays, as you said, resistant to time is that Shakespeare, he never explicitly moralizes or it's never quite clear what he's trying to teach us. Um, so it's not like a, a sort of fable that has a really clear moral at the end. There's definitely a lot of, of teaching and ideas going on, but there's a lot of space for us to come in and try to work out what it is that we're supposed to take away from it. And then I think that's the other thing is that the plays have so many gaps in them that they invite audiences to fill. And the fact that they are performed today, that they're plays, not just for reading, but for performance, creates so many opportunities for people to fill them in different ways and to explore different settings, different kinds of casting. So there's this kind of freshness that you can get with every new performance and also every new reading of a play that, I mean, I'm very biased, but for me makes the plays um, just a great place to keep returning to. That's brilliant. I think you know, we both uh, are actually you know, fans of uh, Shakespeare. I just wanted to ask you, which one is your actual favorite play? Oh, that's such a good and such a hard question. It's always <laughs> the one that I'm working on the most at the time. Um, mm. But I have to say, in terms of the comedies, um, I oh, they they all I love them all for different reasons. But I do really love a Midsummer Night's Dream. I think because. It is funny, um, but also because it can change so much with time. I love that kids can enjoy it, um, but I also love that you can return to it as an adult and see other things in it. Um, uh, yeah, but gosh, they're so great. What's your favorite? Um, mine's, my favorite actually is not a comedy at all. It's, uh, it's Macbeth, which is, you know, quite dark, yeah. you know, but I, I do love, I do love all the, uh, you know, the, the analysis, uh, analysis of the characters and and the people's mm-hmm. behavior is so amazing, so deep, and I, for that, that's why I, you know, I've always been a big fan. Um, just one last question, please, before <laughs> I let you go. Um, if someone hasn't um, read Shakespeare before, what would be the first book that you could recommend to get someone interested in in Shakespeare? Do you think? 
Mm, that's a great question. I can think of a couple things. So a really good book that came out a couple of years ago or within the last year or two is Emma Smith's book, This Is Shakespeare. And it's based on her lectures um, that she turned into podcasts. And they're really accessible. They go play by play. Um, and so you can just, you know, you could just read the the essay on the play that you want to read and get a really good introduction. And the other thing I'd say is that there's an organization called the Folger Shakespeare Library in the United States, and they have a great podcast series. So if people would prefer to listen to something, um, they've got podcasts on all different kinds of things about Shakespeare, from the history of his times, but also to the ways that they're reinvented today by, you know, people all over the world. Brilliant. Um, Dr. Erin Sullivan, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about a subject that, that's close to both of our hearts. Thank you so much for your time. I wish you a great day, and uh, thank you for coming on again. You're very welcome, and thank you for having me. Thank you. Have a great day. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. That was our interview with one Dr. Erin Sullivan. Um, he was a cultural historian, a literature scholar, interested in the, the nature of emotional experience and its relation to art. And a very interesting listen, actually. Um on the points relating to Shakespeare and indeed how, in fact, all of us can really um, learn and continue to um, have a greater interest for reading. Um, you know, that being our previous segment that we discussed earlier on um, and how we can instill the element or at least the attribute and indeed the tradition of inculcating, um, I guess, reading within our young um, and how that can enable you know, all sorts of um, virtues to then flourish within uh, the generations to come. Um, we also have another um, pre-recorded um, audio clip um, around the importance of higher education and how crucial it is. Um, and we'll just play that for our listeners now. This is what I have been telling and even my previous colleagues have also been been telling the people, our students, that they should continue their studies. They should not stop their education at after secondary school. They should at least be graduate and further their studies. This is why the Khalifa Masih Salas started the program of giving gold medals, and he it was his wish that. We should have at least 100 Nobel Prize winners, and we should be should have at least 1,000 top scientists in our community, which we are not having at present. Right? This is why Amure Talaba Department has been formed here in the Khudamul Ahmadiyya and, and Secretary Talim in the Jamaat system to encourage the students that uh, they should. Instead of stopping their education after secondary education, they should continue going to universities and further their studies. And uh, even if they think they cannot go into research or some other uh, science subjects or professional uh, fields like engineering and medicine, then at least they should sit in the competition examination and go into the civil service. So at least we should have good number of civil servants in the governments. So in each and every field, an Ahmadi should be present. 
and for that you have to encourage them. And this is why the department of Amure Taluba was formed, that they should encourage the students. Even this is the job of the parents as well. If the parents are educated, they will ask their children to further their studies after completing their secondary school. Minimum education of an Ahmadi student should be graduation. And after that, he can choose different fields. Right? So, this is your duty. You are a young boy, you can encourage them. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Asalaamu Alaikum and welcome back to the breakfast show here at the Voice of Islam. Um, before the short break, um, we had listened to an audio clip by His Holiness on the importance of higher education. But uh, I am pleased to say that we now have been joined by our next guest caller this morning. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be upon you, and a very warm welcome to Professor Emma Smith. Professor, are you with us? No, I guess not. Um, in any case, um, we'll try to reconnect. Um, the The aspect we've been covering this morning has been around uh, Shakespeare's best comedies um, and how um, you know many of our listeners perhaps weren't or aren't aware of the level of imitation that was carried out or at least covered by uh, Shakespeare and um, the fact that he, well, in, in actuality, um, earlier on when we were talking to Professor Roberts from um, the professor of theatre at Guildford School, um, University of Surrey, he was telling us that it was heavily encouraged, um, the fact that plagiarism um, was encouraged and um, was the way that things were done back then. Um he also touched upon his favourite um, comedy, or at least play, being, I do believe, A uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, and I think the interesting point here, really, to, to understand was that comedy was traditionally a lower genre um, than tragedy or history. And so these comedies by Shakespeare contemporaries justify themselves by their, by their stature, um, and satire was a higher genre than other kinds of comedy and commended by classical authors as morally improving. Um, and city comedies had a moral purpose and they mocked current follies and vices. Um, and to that extent, the early prophet, peace be upon him, the founder of the religion of Islam, has said to have enjoined his followers to seek knowledge um, because, I guess... Um, this element really, um, or this segment, it really allows us to experience literature um, and expose ourselves to literature, which, dare I say, isn't the norm nowadays, um, or at least isn't um, from where we stand or our perspective is that it, it is somewhat dying out. Um, and the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, um, 
enjoyed to learn uh, from nature, history and social conditions of different nations and countries. Um, and it's narrated that a companion of the Prophet um, stated that the word of wisdom is a lost property for Muslim so that wherever he finds it, he should take it as if he is most entitled to it. Um, so some very wise words there. I do believe now that we have been joined by um, one Professor Michael Dobson. A very warm welcome, Professor, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. Professor, are you with us? No, apologies. Uh, I guess we are having some issues with uh, connecting. Um, in any case, so yes, Brother the Feast, that's what has been the discussion this morning um, around um, the the whole um, conversation being around Shakespeare and um, the plays that he um, wrote and the comedies that he wrote. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. Um, I think uh, some listeners might be wondering who have just joined us now that, uh, you know, the, our uh, radio is called Voice of Islam when we're talking about Shakespeare. But um, just the point that you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, uh, that the Holy Prophet, وسلم, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that um, uh, seeking knowledge uh, is enjoined upon Muslims, even if they have have to travel to China, China, so the Holy Quran also states that uh, encourages um, believers to travel and explore uh, other cultures. So um, in that sense, it's um, very important and in fact related to Islam that we are um, uh, exploring uh, Shakespeare and his uh, writings. No, thank you for that, Brother Nafis. Um, I do believe now we have made connection with uh, Professor Emma Smith. A very warm welcome to you and thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hello, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, a pleasure. Um, Professor, we've been talking about um, Shakespeare and indeed um, the, the plays that he wrote, the comedies, um, and how vital, or at least um, perhaps our listeners aren't even aware of, the fact that... Um, those comedies were written. Um, mind you, Professor Emma Smith is a professor of Shakespeare studies at the University of Oxford and a fellow of Hartford College, and she's published and lectured widely on Shakespeare um, and on other early modern um, dramas. Um, so, Professor, what makes Shakespeare's comedies a comedy, and what are the conventions of these plays? Well, that's a really good question. You said earlier that the comedies tend to be uh, about lower status, more ordinary people. Uh, tragedies tend to be about kings and uh, high-ranking people. Comedies for Shakespeare tend to be about people a little bit more, perhaps, like us. At the centre of Shakespeare's comedies usually is romance and the interruptions to romance. So Shakespeare gives us uh, rom-com, really, uh, a genre we're very, very familiar with now, uh, an interrupted um, courtship or, or partnership between uh, two individuals who seem pretty well matched but can't quite get together because of some uh, external uh, obstacle. And the other, the final thing I would say about Shakespeare's comedies is they really emphasise society and community. So tragedies, um, if you know anything about Shakespeare's tragedies, you might just know their names like Macbeth or King Lear. Those singular names emphasize the fact that the the status of tragedy is sort of to be on your own 
But really, in comedy, the whole point is that we become our best selves, we, we live our best lives in dialogue, in communities, uh, in within society rather than away from it. So they're, they're, they're sort of uh, life-affirming kinds of plays in lots of different ways. Mm. Um, and Professor, what qualities of his comedies um, have persisted through time? Can we see the influence in recent media and literature? Well, there's been um, a lot of re reworkings of, of Shakespearean comedy in, in modern day. There's quite a uh, a popular genre of high school movies uh, based like 10 Things I Hate About You, which is based on Taming of the Shrew, uh, or uh, She's the Man, which is based on Twelfth Night. And what those adaptations speak to is uh, that the basic outline of the stories uh, of Shakespeare's comedies are very um, consistent and very recognisable across time and across place. That romantic comedy uh, nugget at the centre of the plays uh, is something which really exists uh, in almost all cultures, however it might be uh, nuanced by particular social beliefs or, uh, or or conventions. So I think that's that's what's at the heart of them and that's why they have lasted. Um, Professor, lastly, what did Shakespeare contribute to the comedy genre in general and, and how do you think he shaped it? So I think he brings... Um, uh, a kind of, uh, I, th I think he brings to the fore uh, an ending that is uh, resolved in in marriages and which looks which looks to the future. So I think that sense um, I would always contrast it with the tragedies. At the end of the tragedy, there is no future, but at the end of the comedy, we've really invested not just in a future for the for the couples who are getting together, but more broadly for the society uh, that they live in. Fantastic. Well, Professor, um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you um, on this programme. Um, thank you so much for taking the time out. And, uh, Thanks so much. An absolute pleasure. Um, that's Professor Emma Smith, Professor of Shakespeare Studies at the University of Oxford and a fellow of Hartford College. Um, and we swiftly move on to our next caller this morning. Um, a warm welcome and peace be upon Michael Dobson, Director of Thanks. the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford-upon-Avon. Thank you very much. What a treat to be here. An absolute pleasure, uh, Professor. Professor Thompson um, is a professor of Shakespeare Studies at the University of Birmingham. He's also an honorary governor of the Royal Shakespeare Company, a trustee of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, a co-director of the Shakespeare Centre Ch um, China, and an honorary member of the Academy of Sciences at the Higher School of Ukraine. Um, professor, as this year is the 400th anniversary of the first folio, can you please explain the significance of the specific um, collection of Shakespeare's plays and the general impact his players have had on the literary genre? Well, that's a lovely question and a rather large one. Um, the first folio is a huge landmark because it's the first time Shakespeare's plays are gathered together in one book. It makes a big statement saying this popular entertainment, these immensely popular shows, which people have got very familiar with, in the theatre, a huge range of people have been coming to see them um, over you know, the last 20 years by the time this book came out, are worth printing, are worth preserving in a library book that is going to guarantee their survival and is going to make a statement about how our local drama in English is actually worth taking seriously and worth publishing on really nice paper. Their theatre companies owned the scripts they commissioned. Authors didn't. 
and not all of Shakespeare's plays by any means had been released uh, or had got out or had been printed individually. Half of Shakespeare's plays we wouldn't have if Shakespeare's friends, Heming and Condell, hadn't, after Shakespeare's death, put together this compilation. We wouldn't have Macbeth, we wouldn't have As You Like It, Twelfth Night, Antony and Cleopatra, um, you know, 18 plays that the folio gives us, which otherwise uh, might well have been lost. Uh, it's a book which has kind of like a sort of time capsule or treasure box gone down through time. Every successive generation has looked at the, the range of these plays, the incredible scope of characters from different periods, from different faiths, with different agendas who are crammed into these plays, arguing amongst themselves uh, forever. Uh, in a way, Shakespeare, he's sort of not an influence on successive writers because every major successive writer has done their bit to try to make sense of them anew. Uh, you have to do something with Shakespeare. You encounter Shakespeare, but he's not an easy write, writer to emulate because he is so elusive, because he's so good at getting out of the way and letting his characters apparently speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a generative package of plays, and his colleagues, when they put it together, were sort of clearly awed by the scope um, they don't just call it Shakespeare's plays. They call it William Shakespeare's comedies, histories, and tragedies. Mm. This is a playwright who can, who can do anything. You know, no possible outcome is off the table for Shakespeare. Uh, sometimes uh, the characters are mainly going to wind up dead. Sometimes they're mainly going to wind up um, sitting around at a wedding reception. You know, it could go uh, any way. Um Professor, being the director of the Shakespeare Institute, um, could you share with us and indeed our listeners something that you've learnt about Shakespeare that kept you interested um, in dedicating your life to studying his work? Well, I suppose I discovered pretty early on that these plays are just amazingly good, mm. that they're extraordinarily entertaining once you see them done live well, and that once you've seen the same play performed twice, you realise this is not a kind of time-bound, once-and-forever monument that is always going to stay the same, but that every time you reread a Shakespeare play, every time another team of actors gets together to perform another Shakespeare play on another night, it's going to mean something different. There are going to be different emphases. There are going to be different aspects of how the play speaks to us and relates to uh, our own experience. Uh, these plays change with us uh, because they have such a, a, a range of empathies. They give such a, a sort of workout to our imaginations and our sympathies uh, as we watch them and see, see them performed. I suppose one of the things my own research on how the plays have worked across time continually reminds me is how enabling they've been, how good these plays are at bringing people together to talk about things, uh, at producing community, just as the comedies are about community, are about how people may or may not manage to forgive themselves and get together in a renewed community. So uh, the Shakespeare canon itself is continually across time drawing together people 
whether to put on the plays themselves as an amateur dramatic society, whether to set up literary clubs where people will sit around and discuss the plays, clubs which have often gone on um, to do uh, much larger things. Uh, the, f the first sort of recognized Shakespeare fan club uh, was the Shakespeare Ladies Club in the 1730s, which uh, had a big influence on providing uh, women with a, a, a sphere in which they could express their education and make a contribution in public uh, to how the culture was forming around them. Most certainly, and I think it's worth noting here too, um, for our listeners at least, that our, I think our current king also has a, or is well acquainted with Shakespeare um, and his yeah. writings. Um, but no, thank you so much, Professor Michael Dobson. It's been very intriguing um, and indeed thought-provoking um, for, for all of our listeners and indeed for us here in the studio to have a, a glimpse into at least the, the comedies that Shakespeare yeah. has written. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time out. We do greatly appreciate it. Thanks. An absolute pleasure. Professor Michael Dobson, Director of the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford-upon-Avon and Professor of Shakespeare Studies at the University of Birmingham. Um, so, yeah, I guess, Brother Nafis, it's, um, it's all really down to um, how much... Um, we really give to our literature that we do have um, and it ties in with the segment that we were talking about earlier on and bringing about the 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 attribute and indeed the, the old traditional reading books mm -hmm. um, and getting involved in literature, literature um, because of um, the vast number of writers mm -hmm. and indeed literature that we do have to our disposal here. Absolutely, especially in this day and age, it's important to mention this, and I'm glad we had uh, our show regarding this topic, because in this day and age where we live in the time of social media and um, uh, information that is literally on our fingertips, people might not be inclined towards reading as much, and I really hope this um, sh the, the topic of today's show uh, reminded all, all listeners to... Um, uh, think about that and uh, go back to our original roots definitely um, and with those somber words uh, a thanks I guess a, a note of thanks um, for all of our um, guest callers that have been with us this morning um, indeed a thanks to our listeners um, and our producer Malahat Adar Hani Asajid Katif Al-Latif and researchers Zalia Ahmed Halima Ahmed Kandakhan Wakikan and indeed our tech department um with that, we are now fast approaching the end of today's live program, um, and we'll leave you with the nine o'clock news. But from all of us here, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. <laughs>